At 8 o'clock every Sunday morning, a group of us get together to pray for the worship service this very hour right now. We gather in a room over here off of the Fountain Cafe and we give ourselves to a very short devotional and then to about a half an hour of prayer. Praying for all of you, really, that the Word of God would be effective in your life this day as you gather to hear the Word together. This morning as we were there gathered together to pray, the theme of our prayer really was that the preaching this morning could make clear the glories of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is our desire to put before your eyes from the Word of God the spectacular kingdom of David so that our eyes might be moved from this planet, this life and all of its troubles and lifted to the glory of Christ and His kingdom. I was talking with somebody earlier before the service. Heaven is going to be on earth. And the best glimpse of what it's going to be like can be found as we search the pages of the Scriptures for the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is the down payment. It is the illustration. It is the foretaste of what it will be like to live forever in the presence of Of Jesus Christ. You know, when we think about the gospel, we tend to think about it in individual terms. We tend to talk about it in individual terms as well. We, We talk about the fact that we as individuals are trapped in sin, helpless in bondage to our fallen nature, unable to please God in in anything that we think or do or say, unable to to come before Him with our own righteousness that would be acceptable before Him. And thus we, we realize we need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. And so the Bible teaches us that Christ came and died on a cross in the place of sinners. That He took upon Himself the punishment due for their guilt. And that he extinguished the wrath of God for his people. He, he drank the cup of the wrath of God to the bottom, to the dregs, every single drop consumed by Christ on the cross. It is finished, he says. And then after three days, he, he rose from the dead. He broke the bonds of death. And he lives forevermore. And he sits now at the right hand of the Father in glory, intervening on behalf of his saints. This is the gospel. That the Spirit of God dwells within us and and that He has given us power over sin. That its bondage over us has been broken. That we no longer have to sin. That we have been given the power of Christ to say no and to say yes to righteousness. This is the gospel, is it not? Is this not what we believe and what we preach? And it's true and it's glorious and it's great. But that's incomplete. That's not full. That's not the complete picture of what Christ has done. It's a truncated view, really, of the gospel. It's, a, it's an individualized view. It's me and Jesus. And it misses out. It's not full enough. It doesn't, it doesn't gather up all that God is doing in Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, when Adam fell, When in that garden, Adam fell. He plunged himself and his race into ruination, but it didn't end there. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, he makes it so very plain, that Adam's transgression, Adam's fall, ruined this planet. It ruined this planet. And that all of creation is in bondage to sin, as it were. And it groans and it it awaits the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. That is, creation is looking for the return of Jesus Christ to put things back the way they should be. This is part of the gospel, too. There is a corporate aspect to the gospel. 
there is an understanding and a reality that it's not just we're rescued from our sin and we're going to be with God someday and, and we slug it out through life here. But no, Jesus Christ is returning and all that is wrong with this planet is going to be fixed. He's going to put the kingdoms of this world down. He's going, to, he's going to crush them and He's going to establish His own kingdom here, a kingdom in righteousness and glory. He is going to recover, beloved, that which Adam forfeited. The glories of paradise returned back here to this little blue planet. This is part of the Gospel too. And this is the part of the gospel that I want to look at with you this morning and next week and this morning and next week. (laughs) If I get too carried away with my introduction, the week after that. (laughs) All too often, all too often we view life through a toilet paper tube. We just have a teeny little view of things. We don't see the big and glorious things that God is doing. It's just me and my sin problems. And Jesus has rescued me from my sin, praise the Lord. Yet I'm still struggling here and now, and life is not all that good. But there's a kingdom coming. There is a kingdom coming. Is that true? (laughs) It is true. And life in that kingdom is going to be glorious beyond what we can imagine. Yet we're not left to merely speculate. Someone once said to me that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Well, maybe that's true, but I would submit to you it's probably not. Jesus spoke a lot about the kingdom of heaven, didn't he? The kingdom of God. And he, that was his message. We, we said last week when he began his preaching ministry, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the theme of his preaching. And the content of that term, the kingdom of heaven, is filled up in the Old Testament. It's all through the pages of the Old Testament. The prophets are loaded with descriptions of this kingdom of heaven, this coming messianic kingdom. So I would submit to you that whenever Jesus and the other gospel writers and and into the book of Acts and the apostles, when they're preaching about the kingdom of heaven, they are talking about the Messiah's kingdom and they are communicating a, a wealth of information for those who know their Old Testament. So I would say, did Jesus talk more about heaven than or hell than heaven? And I would say, no, not at all. Not at all. He spoke about heaven all the time. All the time. He just expects us to know what it is he was talking about. So this morning, this morning, what I want to do with you is begin to examine three extraordinary characteristics. Three extraordinary characteristics, revolutionary characteristics of the reign of Christ that will change the way we view this life and the next. You know, for most of us, most of the time, this life is the sharp image. It is the picture we see that's in clear focus. It commands our attention. And heaven is blurry, a little bit obscure. It's, it's in the background. It's like a, a photograph where the person in the foreground is, is in focus and then the background is kind of blurry. And, and when we're truthful with each other, that's frequently the way we think about heaven. This life and its problems are in sharp focus. And heaven is that blurry, hazy background that's out there somewhere. What I'm hoping for in my life and in yours is by the Spirit of God as the Word of God begins to speak to this issue that the images flip. And so what happens now is heaven comes into sharp focus and the problems of this life begin to blur a little. We begin to see more clearly where we are going, what we were made for. That's what I'm after. Revolutionary characteristics. I'm preaching revolution. 
biblical revolution. And let's make sure if that goes on to the internet that it stays connected. <laughs> You'll visit me in jail, won't you, Jeremy? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Kingdom of Messiah. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. For if it were of this world, my servants would be fighting to rescue me. Isn't that what he said? And so some say, see, there's no physical aspect to this kingdom. It's all some spiritual kingdom somewhere. All wrong. What he's saying to Pilate is, is that my kingdom doesn't come by worldly means. That I don't need human armies. I don't need political maneuverings. In order to to establish my kingdom, I am Messiah. My kingdom will descend and will crush the kingdoms of this earth. It is unlike any kingdom this world has ever known. It is only entered into by those who are spiritual. Those who have been redeemed by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual entrance fee that Christ has paid. But don't let that for a moment delude us into believing that it is not a very tangible, it is not a very physical, it is not a very sense-oriented kingdom, because it is. When God created Adam, He created him body and soul. Body and soul. And He is going to redeem us all, body and soul. And he's going to redeem this planet and all of its structures is a very physical reality. The first revolutionary characteristic that we're going to look at this morning is that life will be fruitful. Life will be fruitful. The great King Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, 3,000 years ago, observed the fact that we live in a broken world. And he commented on that reality over and over again. In the book of Ecclesiastes in particular, his assessment of this broken world was that it was vanity, futility. That no serious, soul-satisfying life can be gathered here on this planet under the conditions in which you and I live. And then if you spend your life looking for it, here and now, at the end of your days, you will die like a dog, he says, in vanity and futility. Even our best attempts, our best attempts in this life produce a mixed crop, don't they? The best you can do produces a mixed crop of tares and weeds, to use a biblical expression. It just doesn't work out like you want it to. That's true spiritually. That is true politically. That is true economically, that is true educationally, and that is true physically. Every sphere, every aspect of our life, it's, it's a mixed result at best. We just can't get it. No matter how hard we try. But when Messiah sets up his kingdom, beloved, when he sets up his kingdom, all of these aspects of life will be fruitful. Life will be like it was meant to be. We will begin to live the way God really intends for us to live. Not just get by. Not just eke it out. But to enjoy the fullness of living in a perfect world in the presence of our Savior. And that begins with Messiah's kingdom. And from there flows into what the Bible calls the eternal state. But it all begins with Messiah's kingdom.
Let's begin to look at these aspects of fruitfulness one by one. First, spiritually. Spiritually. I recently read an article on the web entitled, Where Have All the Christians Gone? Where Have All the Christians Gone? The author writes, and I quote, a shocking new study of Americans' religious beliefs show the beginnings of a major realignment in Americans' relationship with God. The American Religious Identification Survey reveals that Protestants now represent half of all Americans, down almost 20% in the last 20 years. In the coming months, America will become a minority Protestant nation for the first time since the pilgrims. These are mega changes, mega shifts going on in our culture. The number of people, the author continues, who claim no religious affiliation, meanwhile, has doubled since 1990 to 15% of the U.S. population. That is the highest point in the history of this nation. Non-believers now represent the third highest group of Americans after Catholics and Baptists. He goes on to write, but these non-believers are not particularly atheist. That number hasn't budged and stands at less than 1% of the U.S. population. Agnostics are similarly less than 1% as well. Instead, these individuals have a belief in God, but no interest in organized religion. Or they believe in a personal God, but not in a formal faith tradition. Close the quote. What does all this mean? What it all means is that which you and I readily observe around us. People are spiritual in this country, but it's not the spirit of holiness, is it? There is a spirituality in the land, but it's not a spirituality wrought from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But, beloved, when Messiah's kingdom comes... When Jesus establishes his kingdom here, that kingdom will be characterized by righteousness. Not a free-floating spirituality that is anything but holy, but a spiritual reality of righteousness and holiness. In fact, one of the ancient prophets says that holiness will be as common as a fry pan in the kingdom of Messiah. The prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah 61, verse 11, For as the earth springs forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. It'll just well up from the ground. Let's turn back to an ancient prophet I referenced here a moment ago, back to the ancient prophet Zechariah. If you're using a Bible here, a pew Bible, let me help you out on that. Page 950. 950 will cause you to arrive at the 14th, the end of the 14th chapter of the prophecy of Zechariah. We would be so impoverished in our understanding had God not moved on this man to write. And to fill in a lot of details about that coming kingdom. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 20. Zechariah 14 and verse 20. In that day, you'll remember I told you some weeks ago, when you see that expression, in that day, your mind should flash forward and say, aha, clue. There's been a clue given to me here. We're talking about what day? We're talking about the day of Messiah. Day of Messiah. In fact, day of the Lord. Which I explained to you has multiple reference points within this final end time drama. Here in that day looks forward to the time after 
the tribulation and the beginning of Messiah's kingdom. In that day, when Messiah's kingdom is established, in that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. The bells of the horses. You know, the decorations that hang off of the the bridle and saddle of a horse. No particular value to them. They're just, they're just decorations. Holy to the Lord, it says. Do you know a long time ago, there was a little gold plate that at the command of God, it was inscribed on it, Holy to the Lord. And that gold plate was affixed to the front of the turban of the high priest of Israel. It was part of his official high priestly garments. Holy to the Lord, he wore across his forehead as he represented the people. The prophet says it will come off the forehead of the high priest and will now adorn the bells that hang from the bridle of a horse. Be like a bumper sticker on your car. Holy to the Lord, but not a slogan. A reality. A reality. Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem will be holy to the Lord of hosts. My translation, holiness will be common like a fry pan. Like every household has a fry pan. That's the way holiness is going to be in Messiah's kingdom. It's going to be in every house and in every place. It won't be hard to find. It won't be something you have to search for. How different that is from today. Where can one find holiness today? Where does one go to look for holiness today? Even in the lives of God's own people, it's a commodity that is, that is absent at times. Common as a fry pan. Holiness. Righteousness springing up like plants from the ground. Messiah's kingdom will be a kingdom of righteousness. A kingdom of holiness. The means by which that will come about is that no one will be admitted into that kingdom who is not first righteous. You remember last time we looked at all those resurrections. And I apologize to you. I had the best of intentions of coming back to that and making a little chart and putting it in your worship bulletin for you. And I I'm old and I flat forgot. (laughs) So I'll try to remember to do it next week. But those of you who are able to track with me, the, the point of all of the tracing, all of those phases or aspects of the resurrection to life was that no one enters into Messiah's kingdom who is first not a child of the king. All who enter in are his No one will enter who does not hunger and thirst after righteousness. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. None will enter in who have not first passed through the evaluation, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. None will enter in who have not received a glorified body. Only those enter in who either confirmed in their righteousness through the resurrection unto life or have come in because of their lives demonstrating their their faith and commitment to the King, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And yes, in Messiah's kingdom, we will have people in physical bodies and people in glorified bodies living side by side. And lest that unnerve you, look to the 40 days of Jesus's ministry here on earth after his resurrection when he lived and ate among his disciples. None will enter into Messiah's kingdom who not a hunger and thirst after righteousness. 
And the king of righteousness himself will sit on the throne and rule in perfect righteousness. Listen to me. Listen to me. The spiritual climate of this planet is going to be revolutionized. It is going to be so transformed, so changed. It's going to be unlike anything you and I know. We're like goldfish. We're like goldfish living in a goldfish bowl. They're wet. Their whole environment is water. And they don't even know it. They don't even know they're wet. You and I live in an environment of sin. You and I live in an environment of sin. It's in us. It's around us. We don't know how bad it is. We have no idea how bad it is. We often speak about this worship service as a foretaste, as a glimpse of glory. And and in some way, that's true, it is. But even this on its best day is nothing. It's imperfect. It's messed up. I'm here. I'm full of sin. But there's a time coming, beloved. Listen to me. There is a time coming when we're going to experience spirituality as God intended it to be. A time of righteousness, a time of holiness. Well, that's not going to end there. Because Christ is going to transform this world politically. He is going to transform this world politically. You know, engraved upon a wall in a park across the street from the United Nations headquarters building are the words of the prophet Isaiah. It's it's called the Isaiah Wall. On there, these words are engraved. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's taken from Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4. What a lofty idea. The United Nations established coming out of World War II, whose purpose was to provide a format for the nations of the world to come together and to discuss their differences so they wouldn't have to take up guns and go to war with one another. This world had just come out of the most devastating conflict that the world had ever known called World War II. Not a nation had been left unaffected by the bloodshed and the cruelty of it all. And so in their best efforts, the leaders of the world came together and established the United Nations. Whose 2010-2011 annual operating budget is $13.9 billion. The United Nations employs 22,000 employees just to try to get your arms a little bit around the size of this world organization. Almost $14 billion a year spent in their annual operating budget, employing almost 22,000 employees flung all over the corners of this world. And how are they doing? How's it going? Is the world a safer place? Have people put down their guns? Have they beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks? Well, you know the answer, don't you? This world remains a a dangerous place. A tinderbox waiting for a spark. The world longs for peace. It longs for peace. And yet it is elusive. It is out of reach. But when Messiah returns, when Messiah returns, the world will for the first time know peace. Psalm 46, verse 9. 
It says he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Not until Jesus Christ returns and establishes his great messianic kingdom and crushes the kingdoms of this world will we ever know peace. driving along some time ago behind a car and bumper sticker said, visualize world peace. My thought was, pray for the return of Messiah. You can visualize it all you want. Man is never going to establish it. He will judge between the nations, the prophet says. He will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war, Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4. But not this day. But not this day. You're still in Zechariah. Flip back to... Chapter 9. Let me show you something really interesting. Page 946. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Let me just read verse 9 for you first. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When did that prophecy come true? When was that prophecy fulfilled? The gospel writers say it was fulfilled on Palm Sunday, Right? That when he entered into the city of Jerusalem, he entered in on the back of a donkey. The prophecy was fulfilled. Look at verse 10. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And that would be the Euphrates River. Here's what I want you to see. The prophet Zechariah compresses into two verses, side by side, the two comings of Jesus Christ. His first coming in verse 9, his second coming in verse 10. And just as he fulfilled at his first coming, literally, the prophet's words, he will fulfill at his second coming, literally, the prophet's words. He will speak peace to the nation. His dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The bow of war will be cut off. By the way, all of the last 2,000 years fit right into the little white space between the end of chapter or verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. You are in the white space. And so am I. So am I. Messiah is bringing peace to this globe. And until he gets here, we will never have true peace. Never. Economically, life will become fruitful. Economically, life will become fruitful. Here's a revolutionary idea for us. This planet staggers under the effects of the curse. It will not yield its fruit willingly. God specifically told Adam that you will work the ground and it will produce thorn and thistle. And by the sweat of your brow, you will bring forth fruit from the earth and you will die and return to the dust. But beloved, by two simultaneous events, two simultaneous events that, are, that occur at the beginning of Messiah's reign, we are going to enter into an age of unimaginable prosperity. Unimaginable prosperity. The first is that the curse will be lifted. 
The curse will be lifted. The land will begin to pour forth its bounty. It will pour forth its bounty to such an extent that one of the prophets tells us that while they're, they're getting ready to plow the field for the next crop, they're still harvesting the prior crop. Let's turn to a couple of prophets. Go back to Isaiah chapter 11, page 695, 695, Isaiah chapter 11. Giving you a lot of references in that handout. We're not going to look at them all. You can do that on your own. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Wow. One of the things I like to do is to go to the zoo. It's a recreational thing for Carol and I. We have passes to the San Diego Zoo, and so sometimes on our day off, we'll go down to the zoo. There are particular exhibits at the zoo that I really enjoy. I'll stand there and I'll watch the the gorillas for a long time. They do remind me of some of my family members. (laughs) Which ones? I'm not going to tell you. But you know, when we go to the zoo, yeah, I know, you're trying to figure out who they are, right? (laughs) You know, the one thing we observe when we go to the zoo, they never put the lions and the gazelles in the same cage. In fact, when we we went to the wild animal park the first time, because our passes include that, and we took our son with us, he was younger, and, and we were going to go on the African safari tour. And my son was so excited because they said that they're going to not be in cages. They're going to be all of these animals, predators, and, and they're also going to be gazelles and all this thing. And so we're in the car driving around, and he's waiting for the lion to chase down the gazelle. <laughs> till he figures out they don't let them still even then be in the same cage. He was very disappointed. You want to know why everybody always roots for the gazelle, nobody roots for the lion. <laughs> but one thing we know, it's intuitive, right? You don't, you, don't, you don't put a wolf and a lamb in the same cage. Because this is the broken world we live in. Why can't you put a wolf and a lamb in the same cage? Answer? The world's broken. That's why. The world is broken. That's why you can't do it. Cows and bears, they don't graze together. Not yet. Not yet. But someday they will. What the prophet is doing here is he's taking some things that are obvious to anyone who knows anything. And he's saying, listen, when Messiah's kingdom comes, these two things that we would never consider that are, that are outrageous and outlandish to us, this is what it's going to be like. And, and based on that small picture, get a, get a big picture, folks. This is what it's going to be like when the curse is done. The animal kingdom. They're waiting for the unveiling of the glory of the sons of God. They are waiting. Wolves and lambs, they really do want to live together. They just don't know it yet. (laughs) The land is going to pour pour forth its hardest. Go to the right to the prophet Amos. Page 920, the prophet Amos. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. There we go. Amos. The prophet Amos, chapter 9. Verse 13, 
Amos chapter 9 and verse 13. Behold, days are coming. Uh, uh, uh. Pay attention. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows, when mountains will drip sweet wine and, and all the hills will flow with it. ESV translation, better one, I believe. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Behold, pay attention, listen, the days are coming. The days are coming when the land will be such abundantly prosperous that while they're still picking the grapes, the new crop will come. While they're still harvesting the grain, Jim, there'll be time to plow the fields again because there will be such an abundant crop that one crop cycle will overtake the next. That's what the prophet's telling us. Beloved, the curse is going to be lifted. And we're going to know a prosperity that we have never dreamed of. But there's a second simultaneous event that coincides with Messiah's rule. And that is the nations will no longer need defense budgets. The nations of this world will no longer need defense budgets. Now, I went online and I did a little work inquiring into what is the annual defense budget for the United States. It's a complicated question, actually. I thought it was a simple question. It actually is a complicated question based on the way Congress accounts for things. I guess that shouldn't surprise me, right? You have to ask, well, is this the ongoing base budget or is this the budget plus supplemental spending plus off-balance sheet, off-budget items? Here's the short answer. The official ongoing budget of the Department of Defense is approximately going to be $518 billion for this year. But when you throw in the supplemental expenditures for the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq, when you throw in the the other things that are not considered part of the DOD budget, like VA benefits and affairs, veterans affairs, when you throw in the money that we give to state or, excuse me, foreign states to help them with their military, when you throw in certain aspects of the counter of the war on terrorism, like the the Homeland Security Department and so forth, and then you allocate some money from the debt on prior wars that we fought and never paid for, just put it on the credit card, you add all that up, and all of a sudden the number is a trillion dollars. Trillion dollars. How much is a trillion dollars? I'm glad you asked. You know, in today's economic environment, this is probably something that we all ought to think about for a moment. A $100 bill is the largest denominated U.S. currency. A $100 bill. 100 $100 bills is $10,000. You can get it in a, in a packet. It's about that thick. You can stick it in the breast pocket of a suit coat. Ten grand. 100 packets of $10,000. So 100 of those packets, which will fit in a grocery bag, is a million dollars. So you can carry a million dollars around in $100 bills in a grocery sack. One billion dollars is $100 bills stacked on a standard shipping pallet to a height of three and a half feet. You all know what a standard shipping pallet is. I think it's about four feet square. To the height of three and a half feet, $100 bills, that's one billion dollars. That's a lot of money. One trillion dollars. 
$1 trillion would be standard shipping pallets stacked too high. Now we're at seven feet. 10,000 pallets. That would cover 2.2 acres. That is the entire parking of this facility. To the height of seven feet, $100 bills, $1 trillion. $1 trillion. This country spends $1 trillion or will in this coming year for national defense. $1 trillion. What if we didn't have to spend a penny? Not one penny. What if all of the brain power of all of the best scientists and engineers that is harnessed for the making of war were somehow to be liberated to work on making food more readily available on this planet? To working on things that would bring benefit and improvement to the life of the population of this planet. How much more prosperity would we know? And what if every nation of the world were to cease making war? Eliminate their Department of Defense. Unnecessary. Productivity would be staggering. Absolutely staggering. By the way, that doesn't take into account police departments. Losses due to home burglaries. And all the other associated ailments and ills that come to a society that lives not by righteousness, but by wickedness. So I'm telling you, we can't imagine. We cannot imagine what it's going to be like. It's going to be fabulous, fabulous, glorious. Just like the Garden of Eden. You want to know what heaven's like? You want to know what heaven's like? I've just started to scratch the surface of painting a picture of you from the scriptures of what heaven's like. Listen to me. It's not that you are going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Other people say, well, we're going to be just glorifying and praising God forever. Yes. But not just sitting on your behind and singing endlessly. You're going to be praising and glorifying God in a recreated body as you enjoy the glory of the immediate presence of Christ unhindered by sin. And you begin to do that for which God has created you because he created you to work. And to work for his glory. The problem is now that whenever we work, it's thorns and thistles. But someday, someday, it's going to be glorious. Listen, I said all this, said all that to say this. said all that to say this to you. This is not all there is. This is not all there is. Yet how many times do we find ourselves trying to squeeze a few drops of enjoyment out of this life? We work it and work it, hoping to squeeze something out. Vanity, Solomon says. Futility, Solomon says. But there's coming day. There is coming a day. When all I have to do is pick it up and give it a little squeeze and the juice will come pouring out. That day is coming. That day is coming. And beloved, if we can lock on to that reality, it will begin to transform the way we live now. We won't be so invested here in a life of futility trying to get something out of a broken machine and we will begin to live and look and sacrifice for that which is to come.
What will a man give in exchange for his own soul? What will he give in exchange for his own soul? If you're here this morning without Jesus Christ, if you're still living in futility and trying to make it work, on the authority of the Word of God, I'm here to tell you, give up. Give up. Surrender to Christ. It begins there when you confess before Him your personal guilt and need for His atoning sacrifice. By faith you embrace His cross, but then also realize it's just not you and Jesus. God is doing something far grander than that. And it will revolutionize the direction of your life. May God help us to hear and to believe what His Word says. Let's pray. Our Father, our eyesight is bad as it were. Our faith is weak. Like a siren song, the things of this world beckon us and we find ourselves drawn even when we don't want to be. We find ourselves frustrated. Our very best desires and intentions often go unfulfilled. We don't do what we want to do. We find ourselves doing the things we don't want to do. Oh, Lord, change our focal point. Let us lift our eyes above the horizon, above the here and now. Let us widen out our vision to see the glory of the kingdom of Christ And let us long for it. Let us pray for it. Let us be found busy when it comes. Oh, work in the lives of your people, our Father. We are such frail vessels. We need your grace, not just to save us, but to keep us saved moment by moment and to transform us to the citizens of your coming kingdom. We pray in the name of our coming King, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Ron is going to come and lead us in a really thrilling ending song. He and I have been talking this week. How do we want to end these sermon series on the millennium? We want, to lend it, we want to end it on an upbeat note. You know, we've got something to sing about. And so let's, let's join our hearts and sing. Last week was fabulous. This, come on up. This week is going to be fabulous. Let's sing it out. And after we finish singing, I'm going to come back up. And I, I just have a couple things I need to say in preparation for the lunch. Okay? Bless you. Would you please take your hymn books and turn to hymn number 190.